as, as a Jew, as a gay Jew, uh, Zionist, Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East, as we all know, the only place in the Middle East that I can walk down the street with my wife hand in hand and uh, not be afraid. You can go and walk down the street of Tel Aviv holding the hand of your wife. I can't get in the airport without seven hours of harassment because I'm of Arab descent. I'm not even Palestinian. I'm Lebanese American. The treatment of people of Arab descent just going there is discriminatory. The people who live there suffer horrific discrimination. We have to be able to call it what it is. It's an occupation that humiliates people, that breeds contempt, that breeds anger and despair and hopelessness, that leads to violence. Bush said that there was an occupation. Ariel Sharon said there was an occupation. Barack Obama has said there was an occupation. There is an occupation. It denies people freedom. In, in 1988, when we called for mutual recognition, we could not get that done. We couldn't even get the word Palestinians in the platform. We're asking to move beyond this now. Reality has moved way beyond just recognizing they're there. It's hearing their voices, understanding their pain, saying that our Democratic Party understands that this is a conflict that must be resolved by Time. respecting the rights of both peoples. Time. I thank you. That was Jim Zogby back in June 2016, speaking on the Democratic Platform Committee. He was a Bernie Sanders appointee, and as you probably guessed, was trying to get the Democrats to recognize the word occupation. The woman he was responding to was Bonnie Schaefer, and she was engaged in pinkwashing, which we talked about on our last episode with Dean Spade. Now, I can't bring you an interview with Bonnie Schaefer, unfortunately, but I did interview today's guest, Jim Zogby. He's the founder and president of the Arab American Institute. He's also managing director of Zogby Research Services, which specializes in research and communications and undertaking polling across the Arab world. In September 2013, President Obama appointed Zogby to the State's Commission on International Religious Freedom. Zogby is a lecturer and scholar on Middle East issues. From 2001 to 2017, he was a member of the Executive Committee of the Democratic National Committee. In the second part of the episode, I play the audio from a panel I was on at Left Forum, which was moderated and organized by Jordan Sheridan. The participants include myself, Journalist Malaika Jabali, journalist Aaron Mate. So I wanted to welcome you to the show, first of all, Jim Zogby. Thank you. Can you talk about what what we're seeing right now in terms of the polling and the media landscape, the polling landscape, and the narrative around Bernie Sanders' electability? Uh, you know, this Number one, the polling landscape is a, it's a game that um, people love to play, but it's too early in the process to make much sense out of this. And yet the who's up, who's down story uh, will be dominant in, in, several, um, in several articles and commentaries. What's interesting is that it'll be dominant in the way it's used by those who will look for numbers to make the point they want to make right. um, so that um, the Harris up Biden down the, you know, uh, story that came out after the poll played out in several, um, after the debate rather, played right. out in several polls and in several news stories. But when you looked at the data in the poll, 
what you found was that, yes, yeah, sure, Harris went up because people saw her, hadn't seen her before. And those who said that they didn't know enough to evaluate uh, or hadn't seen her or didn't know about her, that number dropped. And those who knew her did, uh, did increase. Biden was on the stage for the first time since he was vice president. And people said, oh, oh my God, that's him. Right. Um, but the, the reality was that Bernie did very well and yet didn't make the stories. Others did well. Castro did very well. Yeah. And it was interesting because people had not seen him either. Uh, and yet his numbers went way up. His right. favorable numbers actually went up higher than everybody else's. Huh. The storyline that people wanted to make was that Harris was up and Biden was down. So that's what the story looked like. And yet because it's too early, because you're basically working off people who for the first time are seeing the candidate, um, it's not a who's up, who's down, but who we want to show is up and who right. we want to show is down. Um, it's interesting. You know, this is, is related. I guess this speaks more to media um, malpractice and how ineffective and how irresponsible the media is. But, you know, Kamala Harris, to be fair, did a pretty brilliant job going after Biden, talking about his record in terms of rhetoric, um, also his his opposition to mandatory Busing. But what was lost in all of this is that a, a day later, a couple of days later after this debate, she was asked about busing and, and wouldn't commit to uh, supporting mandatory busing. She said uh, it, she said she. Yeah, it was yeah. a tool in the toolbox and we should consider all tools. Um, this is something Harris does. Uh, has done before she'll she'll commit to something and then backpedal but the i mean there was there were articles that mentioned this but the fact that it's not really entering the for instance there i haven't seen any op-eds or think pieces on this right no real analysis of it just some mentions here and there and it, it that i think is such a great example of how superficial the media analysis is um and how much more um, importance people in the media give to rhetoric over policy well, it's, it's not just that. It's that there is a storyline. There's a culture in the pack reporters who cover right. politics. They um, love Joe Biden, but think he's too old. Right. They don't like Bernie Sanders, old or young. Yeah, um, right. They are enchanted with Kamala Harris. Um, and some of them could actually like Elizabeth Warren. After that, it's a, a whole hum who cares uh, field. But we are Although allowing some people seem to like the pack press. Well, they they had their they had their day with him, yeah, right? There, right? There was a they, they literally uh, built him up from nothing right. early on after that CNN interview, and they fawned for days and days and days. And of course, his numbers did go up, but never went up higher than nine percent. Right. Um, and so there, there was a limit to what they actually could do. But as Gene McCarthy said one time, he said. That, He's candidate who ran back in the 70s right. and challenged Hubert Humphrey, actually challenged Lyndon Johnson, then Hubert Humphrey. He said, the press are like crows on a high wire. One lands, they all land. One takes off, they all take yeah. off. Pete had his day of them landing, right. and then they all took off. Right. And now Kamala's got her day of them landing, and fairly soon they'll take off too. But they haven't yet. They've got plenty of stuff to go on, everything from her her criminal justice uh, work as a prosecutor to her uh, said her contradictory position on busing, but but she's still getting getting a bit of a ride because they want to be the shapers of the storyline and and I think that that it's it's really it's not just malpractice it's I I think it's fundamentally unjust yeah. to the whole political process that instead of reporting the news 
they seek to make the news and and I, I um, uh, and then you get the the, the situation on on MSNBC and, oh gosh, and CNN right. where you get reporters talking to reporters literally feeding their feeding frenzy about the storyline that they want to project. And in all of that, we get lost. I mean, th those of us, the consumers of this get lost because what really is Kamala Harris is that I mean, she played a game. It was a really well thought through game. And as I watched her do it, I said, oh, my God, she's got this figured out. Right. And she did. And she had the tweet ready and the T-shirts yeah. ready. Um, and yet it was almost like, you know, the, the guy or the girl at the bar and, you know, giving the line to the other. And it's so obviously transparent. And yet when when the, when the person it. buys it, right. um, it's like, you know, couldn't you see what you were being played? We were being played. The media was being played. And they and they allowed themselves to do it, in part because that was the storyline they wanted to project. Why did Biden deserve to get called out? Of course he right. did. Yeah. But, but in such a, a patently transparent way. In a, in, a, in a situation that had nothing to do with busing when she brought it up, she really wanted to find a way to get into the right. discussion that she, she, oh, by the way, I've got T-shirts and you can call this right. number and get them, Right, um, was the way that the, the, the thing came through. Um, and, you know, and then you had polls come out a couple of days later. And obviously, because she's better known, her numbers are going to go up. But we're, we're, we're playing off of, of that game right now. And of course, I do think that it, you know it would be one thing if she if she had the at least the policy positions to back up the the daylight that she's claiming that exists between her and Joe Biden, but she doesn't, which makes it all the more problematic. But Jim, I want to ask you as a as someone who does a lot of polling, if you had witnessed this weird problem where somehow MSNBC becomes incapable of math. Um, they become mathematically challenged in in <laughs> polls that involve Bernie Sanders. So just some examples. MSNBC's Chuck Todd on May 24th reported uh, that Sanders was down five points instead of up five points uh, after a Quinnipiac report came out. So just a little bit of a, a minor mistake. Another thing that we saw is they somehow added three points to Biden's numbers. This was about support among non-white voters. And... Um, Biden had 25%, Bernie was at 27%, and somehow when they made the graphic for this, uh, it was 28% for Biden, so they added three points, and Bernie Sanders was at 27%. Sometimes they get the numbers right, but they forget how you're supposed to represent uh, things visually. So they had, for instance, uh, 2020 matchups among registered voters where they were showing how these people did polled against Trump. And on the, they had five names. And so the top was Joe Biden, then Kamala Harris, then Elizabeth Warren, then Bernie Sanders, then Pete Buttigieg. And um, the numbers were descending with one exception, Bernie Sanders. So, for instance, you had Joe mm -hmm. Biden on the top at 53%. Then you had Kamala Harris at 48%. Then you had Warren at 48%. Then you had Bernie at 49%. Pete, Mayor Pete at 47%. So somehow they forgot that 49 is actually um, greater, a greater number than 48. So they put that one lower. Steve Kornacki did that also the other day, putting Sanders lower 
on a, a on a graphic, even though he had a higher number. And then at CNN's Harry Enten, by the way, had a really great poll that he really like was did a Twitter poll. You know, on, on Twitter, you can just so listeners understand, you can have people do a vote. And he tweeted, "Where do you stand on who you think is the candidate most likely to be the Dem nominee?" The options were Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, and someone else. So the good news is that someone else uh, won the poll because I think people were kind of on to the fact that someone else should have been Bernie Sanders. But that, I mean, these things are kind of amazing uh, and it shows how little accountability there is or how, how few consequences um, the media faces. Yeah, what, what you're describing, Katie, is not really about polling. Right, right. It's about falsifying uh, numbers in in a, in a couple of cases, and I I, I noted I noted uh, the the numbers you pointed out. I think we're just they they made them up. Um, and in the other instance, it's um, it's selective reporting, um, like the uh, Harris up Biden down, but Bernie was better than both. But they, didn't uh, but they that. left out the Bernie better than both because Bernie's numbers stayed the same. It really has nothing to do with polling as such, as much as it has to do with a fabricated, uh, I think in some cases with, with bad intention, way of reporting those numbers. Because basically at this point, this pack of journalists have decided they don't want Bernie. And when you know I make that point, people say, oh, you're whining. No, I'm just observing that there is too clear a pattern here for us not to note that when you when you make this quote unquote mistake or misrepresentation of the numbers that many times, something is going on right. that is is just not uh, is just not appropriate or, or fair. Now, I, I, one thing I would say though is that there is a tendency to abuse polls um, and abuse poll reporting um, by taking selecting one poll out of a group. And reporting it and ignoring the other data around. There was a couple of articles, there were rather a couple of articles that came out after one poll, I think it might have been in NBC, but I'm not quite sure, that reported um, Bernie way down. Um, And that poll, in fact, did show Bernie way down. Uh, And then followed a couple of articles on news websites that Bernie's in trouble, his Followers are leaving him. Bernie is in big, deep trouble, et cetera. Um, and there was a bit of a depression that set in among some folks who said, oh, my God, it's all the world is falling apart. Bernie's numbers are down to 13 and he's in fourth or fifth place. What came out the next day was another poll that showed Bernie in second place. And then there was a poll that showed Bernie in first place. Um, and, and so the question is, what, what do you do with that? Well, there are always errant polls. There are always polls that are off center. And it's best to not pay attention to them, but to wait for other numbers to come out to make the comparisons. Because when you're polling 400 people, which is what they're polling nationally, and the margin of error is in the 4% range, um, what that basically means is that if somebody's at 19 and somebody's at 14, they're basically even. They could very possibly be even, or the numbers actually could be flipped. The 14 could actually be an 18 and a half, and the 19 could actually be a, a, a 14 and a half, but that's what you know what you get in the poll is a snapshot that doesn't tell you as much as looking at trends over time or comparing many polls. It's also not appropriate 
to match a, a, a poll that comes from one source with a poll that comes from another source uh, and say, oh, my God, he dropped down two points. Number one, the two points don't mean anything when the margin of error is larger than that. But secondly, it doesn't mean anything because the methodology right. used by the two polling companies may be very, very different. What has bothered me and I think has been noted by some observers uh, is that the, the, the demographic model used by these polling companies, they're not random polling anymore. They're weighing their numbers to match the, the, the universe. But if they're weighing the numbers and not getting the appropriate number of, for example, young voters or of minority voters, then the poll is going to get skewed. And what we're knowing right now is that unlike 2016, Bernie's doing better among African-Americans than mm-hmm. many of the other candidates. Mm-hmm. We also know historically that he has always done better among millennials. If you short the, the millennial numbers or the 35 yeah. or 34 and under numbers, you're going to get very different results if you get a poll that's top-heavy with 50, 50 years and older uh, or heavily white. Um it's interesting that Bernie is doing well with demographics that actually matter in a mm-hmm. democratic race, but nobody is really paying attention to that. Um, uh, he's, he's doing well with um, uh, working class white voters who we have to win. He's doing well with African-American voters. He's doing well with uh, lower income voters, uh, white and, and black um, Elizabeth Warren is doing very well with educated and right. wealthy white voters. That That's not a winning ticket. Um, and right. so I, it's kind of important to look at that. But I think that too few times the reporters will present the, the, the granular look at what the numbers are telling us and who's in what group and how many of each they, they did. As much as, as I said, they'll cherry pick the result they want to show you, Biden down, Harris up. Right. Right. Warren beating Bernie, uh, but not telling you what those numbers are actually saying beneath the surface. And that that is where I think malpractice comes in. Right. <clears throat> and can you talk about um, the uh, recent Axios poll? Axios of evil. I just made up that term. You're not saying that. Yeah. I am. Yeah, you, you are. Right. Um, Don't want to get you in trouble. for the, that. Yeah, the the. the I can't get in trouble with Axios because I'm not a fan. But yeah. um, but let me just pull that one up because I remember it was pretty outrageous. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was the one that had the, the – It was leaked. That was a, they, It wasn't an Axios poll. They reported right, it. Right, right. They said, they said that uh, top, um, uh, top Democrats had been circulating this poll that they had done in swing districts showing that uh, – um, Alexandria and uh, Ilhan and Rashida did very poorly in those districts. Um, the squad. Well, I'm sure I'm sure that they did because I'm sure that people in those districts don't really know who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they asked the question um, uh, about socialism. Right. It was sort of like the same as a, an, an, a, a Washington Post poll recently that asked people who would you favor, Trump or a candidate you regard as a socialist? Oh, wow. Well, That's by a great definition, you've stacked the deck right. there, right? right? And they reported that as Trump, Trump beats the candidate you regard as socialist. But in the, in the, in the poll as well, they had Bernie beating Trump by, um, by eight or nine points. But that didn't make the story. Right. The story was the candidate you regard as a socialist would lose. 
Right. Um, and in the Axios poll, uh, asking a straight-out question in a swing district, do you support a socialist or, or, or are you in favor of socialism or in favor of capitalism, is not really a, 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 a poll question you can ask. What they should have asked was, are you for Medicare for all? Right, exactly. Um, are you for um, um, or against uh, forgiveness of student debt? Are you for or against um, increasing the minimum wage? Are you for or against taxing the 1% uh, to the level that they ought to be taxed in order to uh, to allow for government programs that would uh, provide for free college education and Medicare for all? But if you ask the question that way, you're going to get very different answers, but that's not the way they ask it. They say, do you like socialism or do you like um, – do you like capitalism? Right. Um, which ignores the fact that there are these prejudices before you even get into the story uh, that are not accounted for. Bernie had to do a speech explaining what socialism right. is, um, and yet that has not resonated because that speech didn't get reported. Yeah. I must go. Okay. I, I really uh, thank, thank you, you for so the much. Time to, the, the time to do this. Yeah. And, uh, and I'll do it again sometime. Great. Thanks, Katie. Thanks so much. Bye, Jim. Bye. Bye. Like a bird on the wire, like a drunk in a midnight choir, I have tried in my way to be free. Hope everyone's having a nice Saturday. Uh, I just got back from Miami, and it's just as humid here, so it's fantastic. Um, I, my name is Jordan Charidon. I'm going to moderate this panel, and I kind of uh, named it the corporate media propaganda machine because I think the corporate media is a much graver threat than the Russian boogeyman uh, and other uh, grave threats we're told about by the corporate media. Uh, I've been lucky enough to be on the campaign trail uh, this time around, as well as 2016 and, and a lot of other stories. Uh, and we have kind of like a nice cross-section of journalists here who cover a whole lot of different things. So uh, my quick background, uh, right out of college, I worked uh, in the dungeon at, uh, feel free to judge, Fox News for two years. Uh, so I got plenty of stories to tell. Uh, then I went across the street to MSNBC, which was actually just as bad. Uh, then I did kind of a little bit of a side door. I did writing for a few years, digital production. In 2016, I joined the Young Turks, so that's where I got uh, most of my in-the-field reporting experience. And uh, that kind of showed me. I was on the campaign trail a lot with corporate journalists, which I put in air quotes, and it kind of showed me it was less so of a journalistic industry and more of a kind of high school elitist circle jerk, for, for lack of a better word. Um, so uh, I was there, and now I have my own uh, independent outlet, Status Quo. Uh, we were just in Miami covering the first debate, and ironically, uh, the Democratic National Committee slash NBC denied us credentials to go inside, uh, citing space constraints, uh, <laughs> which was not so. So um, joining us, we have uh, right here, Aaron Maté. Uh, Aaron, he's uh, right here in Brooklyn. He's been with Real News in the past, Democracy Now. Uh, he also writes currently for The Nation and is also a journalist for The Gray Zone, which is a great, great outlet. Uh, they've been doing stuff and great stuff. 
from Venezuela to Colombia, uh, a lot of great international stuff, uh, Max Blumenthal, Ben Norton, Aaron, and others. Uh, really, frankly, it's the only place uh, that I read what's actually going on, uh, the truth. Uh, it, from political assassinations in Colombia to not all of Venezuela uh, wants the U.S. Actually, most of Venezuela does not want the U.S. And other things. And Aaron actually just won the prestigious Izzy Award for independent journalism. He, uh, for, uh, I don't know how he does it, but he's been slaying the, the myths of Russiagate now for two and a half, three years. So, uh, thank God. And, uh, Next to him is Katie Helper uh, with the Katie Helper Show on Katie Helper Show on WBAI. She has done uh, really great work. Her, her, her pieces have appeared in the New York Times, uh, Comedy Central, The Nation, and some call her uh, cute and somewhat brainy. So, oh, that's it. yeah. And uh, like me, you could always depend on her for a good Twitter fight with the Democratic Party establishment. Um, she, she loathes identity politics and, uh, uh, excuse me, the we yes, correct me, the weaponization of it. And uh, next to her, thanks to Malaika Jabali, uh, she joined us last minute. So Malaika is a, a writer, she's an attorney, which is awesome, and an activist. Uh, she's also a, a journalist, so she's been doing great work on politics, culture, and race. Uh, in Essence, The Intercept, Glamour Magazine, The Root, Current Affairs, as well as The Guardian. So uh, thank you for joining. So we're kind of just going to have a casual conversation on the panel. We'll definitely do some Q&A. We don't have a mic over there, so we'll just have to be like. So I kind of wanted to start because, like, we all either working directly for or not indirectly have experiences dealing with the corporate media. So I kind of wanted to share my own story and then get uh, your experiences. But in 2016, I I mostly did not travel with any candidate. Um, I mostly traveled independent of the candidates, so I could actually go to the rallies, like two hours before, speak with people. Uh, if you travel with the candidates, you're mostly at their mercy when they show up and things like that. And it was always amazing to me because when I be on, uh, when I did travel uh, with Bernie's campaign and Trump's campaign at the end, on the plane, it was, it was almost like, like, it was really like high school. These, these journalists that described themselves as neutral and unbiased were straight up just like trashing Bernie on the plane or uh, propping up, oh, you know, Hillary's definitely going to win these things. And it was just amazing to me if everybody could actually see what was going on and that these people are just humans with opinions pretending to be neutral. I call them kind of PR people uh, with makeup on. Uh, you know, there's some good journalists, but they're also kind of mostly 20s, 30s, a lot of these people on campaigns, and they have their own biases, which is fine if you disclose it. I don't think bias in journalism is a problem if that bias is supported by facts. Mm -hmm. um, so I also, I remember, uh, it was, I wish I taped it, but I was actually sitting in the back of the bus and in front of me was Robert Costa of the Washington Post, I'm totally going to put on blast. And I saw through the crack in the, in the seat that he was writing a piece on Bernie. And I could actually see him, like the words, he was writing and then he would 
like delete and add in new words that were more critical. And I saw this like in front of me, and it was just like amazing. So that's kind of my anecdotal things. I also uh, my outlet covers a lot of stories that aren't getting coverage, like Flint and Standing Rock and things like that. What I've seen is kind of this cognitive dissonance where like. Uh, I know, I think uh, Medina's been at some, some of those things too in the audience with Code Pink. And you see like American citizens, protesters getting basically tear gas, shot at with rubber bullets. I mean, just a military occupation at a lot of these things. And then you'll like go back to the hotel you're staying at and the, the news will be like, Trump tweeted something. And, and it's just this cognitive alternate reality. And I think the corporate media and this cognitive alternate reality is in large part uh, how, re how we reinforce and elevate oligarchy because they are there to distract. Oligarchy. Oligarchy, excuse me. They are there to distract. So that's some of my experiences and I just wanted to kind of ask you guys uh, what's been some of your experiences. Some of you have worked uh, with corporate outlets as for freelance pieces. Some of you uh, have uh, appeared in corporate outlets. Um, I'll start with you. What's kind of been your experience? Because to me, um, corporate media and the advertisers are, are equally as toxic, if not more, than the donor plus. All right, I like that. Um, so my foray into political journalism started off with, some people might be familiar with current affairs, I wrote a piece called The Color of Economic Anxiety. And it was a bit of a challenge pitching it, I think for a few reasons. One of them being that I wanted to do a deep dive of kind of this assumption of what the working class looks like and the assumption that black people across the board, the black people who are working class in particular, aren't attracted and aren't uh, work these progressive policies and left policies and socialism doesn't appeal to them. And so in pitching it, you know, it's a long form article. I had to go to Wisconsin and do a lot of work for it. But I think a major challenge was the fact that in talking about them and saying that they were attracted to these policies and they weren't just suppressed in Wisconsin, they weren't just suppressed because of you know, Russian interference, but they were suppressed because of neoliberal policies that have you know, decimated the region for decades. And, and then having to highlight the fact that these aren't necessarily as important to these communities, I think it made it a little bit difficult to pitch. So I went there, for instance, the fall of 2017, that was when I first started doing the reporting, and it didn't get published until October 2018 because I knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody at Current Affairs. And then after that, I had you know a number of kind of reporters from those mainstream outlets hit me up. It was like, yo, that was a great piece. That was, I like what you did there. But it's harder if you don't have relationships with editors. And so I think the way that I kind of carved my way, even working with some sort of corporate outlets, was finding editors who were sympathetic because even if the corporate overlords, you know, per se, don't value these perspectives, you might have an editor in there. And so, you know, that, that helped at News One, that helped at Essence, where I was able to talk about Fred Hampton and, you know, the U.S. government conspiring against uh, black radical organizations. That helped at The Root, which is owned by Univision. I was able to put in a dig about Nancy Pelosi um, and uh, capitalism in general and at The Guardian. So knowing people has kind of helped me carve away, but when you are black and you are in the left, um, you're kind of marginalized on both fronts because people expect you to have a black beat that is very uh, kind of pro-establishment Democrat. And because of that, because I'm a leftist, it's harder to even just get just regular, let's talk about Medicare for all, let's talk about 
um, the failures of the, new, of the liberal establishment, it's harder to also do that. Ms. Halbert, your experiences? Um, my experiences, I guess, um, one of the most frustrating things for me is just reading the New York Times. Uh, and also, watch. I mean, you mentioned that you worked for Fox News and MSNBC, which is just as bad. And I actually think MSNBC in some ways is worse because we expect it to be somewhat progressive. Like, we know that Fox News is awful. Um, MSNBC, uh, there's been this weird realignment, too, where MSNBC, is sometimes more hawkish than Fox News. Sometimes. Well, Bristol slipped to the group. Yeah, they have an, in, it seems like they have an internship program or something where they rehabilitate like Republicans <laughs> and neocons and bring them over to work for them at MSNBC. But um, the smear, I mean, what I really focus on is the smearing of Sanders because it's not just about Sanders, it's about the ideas that he represents. Um, and as you pointed out, you know, it's one thing for Brett Stevens, Stephens, however you say his name which I don't like saying. Uh, it's one thing for him to really uh, write hit pieces against the left and about Sanders, but it's another thing for reported pieces to do that. Um, and I actually just wrote a piece at, at FAIR, Fairness and uh, Accuracy and Reporting, yeah, uh, which goes through some of the pieces that this woman, Sydney Ember, uses, um, and particularly focuses on the sources she uses. And it's amazing, like you can't make it up. First of all, she uh, comes from BlackRock, that's her experience. She was an analyst at BlackRock, which is like the biggest investor in fuel, uh, in, in coal, sorry. Um, her father-in-law was a, the CEO at Bain. And her sources that she goes to to get to smear Sanders are, not only are they awful, but then she covers up who they are. So she had, to be fair, I think she's, all, she's, she's not just um, ideological, I think she's also not very smart. So, for instance, she actually included Otto Reich, like in her piece about Bernie's foreign policy, she included a guy who did PR for the Contras. Um, so she got a quote from him, and uh, I, I would have thought like an older person at the time would have been like, we don't do that, like that's too over the top. We don't like, we don't go to conscious spokespeople, but we didn't. Um, she like cited a, someone who works in education, but who doesn't, he's just a lobbyist and a lawyer. Um, she cited someone who worked for Hillary's campaign, but revealed to, failed to reveal that, and, and this woman dismissed Bernie as an old, white, straight, right man. Um, and uh, yeah, and then that, and then also the way that, um, the, like you referred to this, the weaponization of identity politics, and the way that, um, there's a total selective focus on race and, and gender that when it's relevant, it's incorporated into the discussion, relevant to the powers that be. And um, when it's an issue of something that like Malika covers, where, you know, when it basically all these people who, who claim to be intersectionalists are everything but class. They're intersectionalists except for class. And they, um, uh, John is here from the Independent, um, and he's the only, one of the only people I ever saw cover this physical, there were two physical attacks on women that we know about during the primaries. Um, they were both by Hillary men on Bernie women. One was Wendell Pierce, unfortunate because I liked him on the wire, bone from the wire. He um, was charged with battery for attacking a woman who was a Sanders supporter. And the other one was um, 
Mamida Ahmed, who was um, hit by a guy who looked like old man time. Sorry if that sounds dangerous or something, but uh, he looked like a villain, and he hit her with a his hand and a cane. Like you can't make it up, and it got no coverage whatsoever, and no and you know Hillary wasn't asked to disown it, to disavow it, and that. I feel like every day, if you pay attention to this stuff, it's just like total gaslighting. Mm -hmm. um, and it's infuriating. So uh, thank you for this. I just, want to, I just want to interject. Some of you might not know all this, but when you're talking about conflicts that are never disclosed, uh, just in the first three months of this year, uh, AT&T uh, gave Kamala Harris $50,000 for her campaign. To be clear, it was individuals who work at AT&T, but the janitors and work lower Worker bees are not giving Kamala Harris fifty thousand. It's usually you know owners of the company, senior management, their wives. The, you know, so an executive can give money, and then his wife gives money to double dip. So CNN is not disclosing that. No wonder they gave her a town hall twenty four hours after she announced. So this uh, you know obviously Jeff Bezos. I call it the Amazon Washington Post. Uh, Jennifer Rubin there is now doing four negative stories on Bernie per week. Uh, Comcast, which owns NBC, MSNBC, Biden's first fundraiser was with uh, a major vice president slash lobbyist for Comcast. These, like, just ethically, these should be disclosed in every second. Not to mention when Time Warner owns CNN, Hillary Clinton's, like, I think, number eight on her career uh, donor list was Time Warner. So these things are not disclosed because the journalists don't actually see them as a conflict. I mean, you know, WikiLeaks, which we should point out, it's a disgrace what's going on with Julian Assange, in my opinion. Uh, WikiLeaks revealed that in 2016, Chuck Todd of NBC was literally hosting a party uh, for Hillary Clinton's communications chairwoman during the campaign. So these are all, uh, you know, why I say public relations for uh, the establishment. And Katie brings up a good point because. I mean, I'm not going to minimize Fox News, we know what it is, but it's the same thing with the corporate Democratic Party. You need an opposition party, a real opposition party, to combat and defeat fascism, and you actually would be uh, a progressive media outlet to correct the propaganda coming from the right. We don't have that on either of them. So, sorry for my tangent. Can I just add one more thing? I wanted to just, um, you, you raised a really important point about bias, which is I think that the most kind of objective journalism is the, is the journalism that owns its subjectivity. So if you just, like you were saying, everyone has an agenda, let's just own that. But but the most dangerous stuff really is the, the allegedly reported pieces that are not reported. And I just wanted to bring up really quickly, this isn't, you brought up um, the, the making the article more negative that you viewed in real time. So this happened a couple years ago and it really did not get enough coverage and I feel like everyone should know about this and, and like recite it every day to everyone they know. But, in 2016, the New York Times was caught doing self-editing, which is when you edit without acknowledging it. They wrote a piece, um, now you see there's that, they're trying to silence me because I'm talking about that. They wrote a piece, the headline came out first as um, Sanders, achieved mod, um, Sanders achieved victory through legislative side doors. A couple hours later, they changed it to through legislative side doors, Sanders achieved modest victories. They took out a positive quote from one of his advisors, they just deleted it, and they added in two negative paragraphs about how he was like high in the sky, and then they, the public editors, like you can't do that, and they defended it, and they said they needed to inject into that article, you know, what his, how realistic his chances were. So there's the levels of kind of like impunity, and they're not, 
once they were caught, they didn't even pretend that they had done anything wrong. It's just so, anyway. And uh, to remind you, Aaron has been doing great work, particularly on Russiagate, which I think is a dangerous deflection. <laughs> You have made more than any of us in the last two, three years been dealing with corporate media going after you on Twitter, calling you a kook, a conspiracy theorist, a Putin puppet. So uh, share your experiences dealing with uh, the corporate echo chamber. Well, yeah, I mean, I can't, to me, in my lifetime, aside from the Iraq war, I can't think of a bigger um, uh, example of, you know, the dynamic we're talking about where the corporate media's function is basically to uh, serve the interests of the privileged sectors that own it, and also to cater to the privileged worldview of the privileged audiences that uh, the corporate media owners want to sell ads to. Uh, if you look at you know presidential scandals of the last 50 years, the ones that have consumed political and media attention, I think there's a through line uh, that Russiagate is very much a part of, where basically the biggest scandals are ultimately the result of intra-elite battles. They're not really uh, relevant or at least far less relevant to the concerns of, uh, of, of everyday people. So take Nixon and Watergate. Uh, he wasn't impeached for uh, presiding over genocidal bombings of Cambodia and Vietnam and Laos, or presiding over COINTELPRO and killing of Fred Hampton. He was impeached because he went after another faction of the elite. Uh, in the 80s with uh, terror war in Nicaragua under Reagan, uh, you know, that didn't become an issue for the Democrats because he was waging a terror war against Nicaragua. That was an issue because he wasn't telling Congress about it. Mm -hmm. And uh, like they wanted in on the action, which we're pretty much hearing now when it comes to Trump's war on Iran. You know, the, the Adam Schiff, for example, the, one of the self-styled leaders of the resistance, his main uh, point of contention is that Trump isn't consulting Congress on his uh, war on Iran, which you know people like Schiff pretty much agree with when it comes to the underlying assumptions. Um, and the only reason, by the way, uh, Nicaragua became an issue in Congress, uh, and there was some limits put on it, is because there was grassroots pressure, especially from church movements here in the U.S., which is sorely lacking now. Uh, you know, same thing with Bill Clinton. You know, no, no impeachment over bombing Sudan or Afghanistan or Iraq, where he imposed genocidal sanctions, or for gutting welfare or massively increasing the. Uh, 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 mass incarceration in the carceral state, but because he lied about sexual relations with Lewinsky, and that was a great way for the other faction of the elite to go after him. And Russiagate, to me, is the apotheosis of all this, in the sense that, but the difference is, it's like, it's, I think, a record level of elite convergence when it comes to elite interests. And it's also completely baseless. Like, there's really, if you look at the genesis of it, there's nothing there. There were no Trump contacts with Russian officials. The predicate for the investigation is ridiculous, and I'm not even sure if we fully learned the full story of what the real predicate was. But regardless, in the case of, of Russiagate, you have many things going on. You have a campaign, a primary where Bernie Sanders has emerged, and he's threatened the establishment. And that alarms everybody. That alarms Democratic elites, and it also alarms uh, Republican elites as well. Then you have Donald Trump, who is um, tapping into uh, you know, the very real uh, animus there is out there towards the establishment. Of course, he's doing it as a con. He's portraying himself as a working class champion. He's also portraying himself as being anti-intervention and speaking to the uh, anti-war sentiment in this country, especially the communities that are most impacted by war. And if you look at studies, there was a study done after the election which showed that there was a correlation between uh, communities where there was the highest military sacrifice 
and support for Donald Trump. Again, not because Donald Trump is legitimately anti-war, but because he conned enough people to believe that he was. So you have factions of the elite uh, in both parties and also in the national security state seeing this, coupled with the fact that Donald Trump is saying, for whatever reason, uh, maybe because he wanted to build a hotel there, uh, that he wanted better relations with Russia. Uh, and so all this is alarming uh, to uh, members of the elite of both parties and the national security state with which they're aligned. And so that's why, that's why during the Donald Trump campaign you already had, even before all this collusion talk, you had you know, record numbers of former national security state officials signing open letters denouncing Trump, not because they don't like his misogyny or racism, but because you know, they don't like his, his anti-interventionist rhetoric. And they also don't see him as a suitable steward of the empire. They, they want someone more like Obama, uh, who can put on the airs of being dignified and, and uh, you know, uh, overseeing the war machine in sort of a uh, dignified, uh, you know, seemingly uh, uh, liberal way, but really it's the same death and destruction. And uh, after Donald Trump, and you know, after Donald Trump wins, which surprises everybody, including me, you know, I didn't see that one coming. That's a shock to everybody, and for Democrats especially, it's a challenge to their privilege status because Donald Trump won by uh, conning enough people into believing that he was going to fight the elite. He was going to drain the swamp. He was going to be a working class champion. And if you're a neoliberal Democrat, that's pretty much a repudiation of everything you stand for. And so in order to uh, sustain your, your you know, in order to respond to that, you pretty much have two choices. You can do honest self-reflection and see, well, geez, what, like, what can we do to appeal to those people, the, that small sliver of people, which was enough to make the difference, who either stayed home in the election or who went over and voted for Donald Trump. Um, uh, or you can uh, come up with excuses and deflections. And obviously Russia was the perfect foil for that. Uh, which converges also, meanwhile, with people in the FBI, like Jim Comey, John Brennan, who was head of the CIA, who despised Donald Trump because, again, for the reasons that I stated, they don't want to see better relations with Russia, they don't like his anti-interventionist rhetoric. So basically, you have this perfect convergence, uh, coupled with a corporate media, by the way, that loves to not talk about real issues, but they're presented now with this gift of this real-life spy thriller. So for everybody involved, it's, 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 like, it, it's too uh, beneficial to pass up. So that explains, I think, the genesis of Russiagate. That explains how it took hold. That explains why those of us who would point out all the countervailing evidence that undermine the entire conspiracy theory. And by the way, it wasn't difficult. It, just, it, it requires not believing in Santa Claus. That's really all it is. Because uh, there, there really was nothing there. Uh, that's why those of us who did that were excluded. And that's why you know we had just this crazy media culture for two and a half years, where you know the most popular cable news host was an unhinged conspiracy theorist, Rachel Maddow. I mean, her show was insane. We just got to the moderator presidential. Yes, yeah, and, and you know, and so that's, um, of course, it never was going to deliver, and, the, and and they tapped into the very real fear that Donald Trump has engendered, because of course he is a nightmare, uh, and but they they weaponized all that for ratings, to deflect from the real self-reflection that should have re resulted from Trump's win, and to uh, you know pursue the interests of the national security state, and it it, gave, it was a perfect nightmare. And somehow it lasted for that long. And it lasted again because simply voices like mine and Glenn Greenwald and uh, Margaret Kimberly from Black Agenda Report, who was speaking here now, you know, uh, all of us were just kept out. And, and that's how it sustained itself. Not just kept out, but like kind of really, really maligned. Like you, you, people like Aaron have really been attacked, smeared, 
um, called, like you were saying, lots of names. Uh, I know it's not about. I know. It's like Twitter. It's not. Yeah. It's, well, it's also the the chatter, like the you know, liberal whatever the liberal liberality. But well, you know what, power, this stuff is significant because editors are influenced. You know what? Too. The irrelevant thing there, I think, or, or at least the most alarming thing there, yeah. for our purposes, of being a leftist gathering, is to the extent to which that dynamic took hold of progressive and adversarial right. elements. Uh, which I don't think there was an exclusion. If you look at, you know, Democracy Now!, The Intercept, my colleagues at The Nation, some of them, Mother Jones, obviously, you know, I, and that's maybe we're talking about later, but, you know, it's, uh, you know, that's the hard part because then when the, uh, when the corporate narrative gets to set the terms of debate and the main way to resist Donald Trump is through a conspiracy theory, and that takes hold even in adversarial elements, that's a real problem. It makes it a lot more difficult for those of us who weren't going along with it to, uh, to reach people, you know, and that's a problem. That's an important point because I don't know uh, what your you all uh, experience, but I've probably been to forty states in the last three years and interviewed thousands of people and um, in the field. And nine out of ten times, average people know a lot more than reporters and pundits on television, which says something. I mean, just the facts, as Aaron could explain much better than I. The DNC never allowed the FBI to even look at its computer server uh, of the hacking. Uh, there are currently on the Washington Post websites, there's still a story that Russia hacked the Vermont electric electricity grid. They didn't retract it, they just put a correction, oh, this didn't happen. But the story's still there. You have a story about <laughs> Russia and something with microwaves and, and diplomats in Cuba. Yes, but Russia and, and, or possibly China, were blamed for uh, diplomats in Cuba uh, becoming injured with these, uh, with, with some sonic injuries, but it might just have been crickets. That's the way it is. <laughs> but the point is, like, none of, you know, all this persists because it's, it's, it becomes no longer based on facts, but upon serving a narrative. And it's been bizarre, you know, like being considered fringe for pushing back against it. It's, it's weird. And I'd like to get to that narrative as human like So to me, I mean, when you look at 2016 objectively, whether you like Hillary, whether you didn't, whether you got conned by Trump, objectively, there was an explosion of anti-establishment fervor on both sides. I'd say on the right, they kind of got conned by a billionaire pretending to be a populist. So you would think, wow, this is an amazing story for follow-up for the next year. Why are people so angry? Why are people so desperate? Why are, why are we seeing this explosion of white nationalism? Um, why don't we go speak with people? But they don't want to do that because Comcast doesn't want that. at and doesn't want that. Amazon doesn't want that. So how can we distract? How can we distract away from police executing black men? Five percent less black people came out in 2016 for Hillary Clinton than 2012 for President Obama. How can we distract from growing gentrification, which frankly Bernie's the only candidate talking about it, which is really, I mean, it's, it's a dressed up word for economic violence. That's what gentrification is. How can we distract from exploding homelessness? I discovered Seattle homelessness, which is Jeff Bezos and Amazon are largely responsible for. Uh, how do we distract from these things? And that's in large part what corporate media exists to do, distract from the growing uh, patterns and trends and make a boogeyman, whether it's Russia, whether it's Bernie, whether it's um, you know, uh, you know, socialism and things like that. I'd love your thoughts um, on kind of the deflection you see in corporate media away from, I mean, it's not like growing anti-establishment fervor has just gone away. Uh, I think there's a few ways to talk about it. One of them is looking at the 2016 election, which is where a lot of my research and my reporting has been based. 
And the other is to look at what's going on right now. There's this assumption that we're hearing constantly from the establishment me media is that Joe Biden has like won over black voters. Uh, Joe Biden is the most electable. Joe Biden is the main one who can beat Trump. Joe, my time is up, Biden. <laughs> <laughs> Take that to heart, sorry. Um, and what's interesting about that to me is that when you look at those headlines, and so I think a lot of probably all of us here are very online. Um, and so I'm going through Twitter and I'm looking at just the captions of them and they have these like really grand pronouncements about how, like, can anyone beat Joe Biden? Will Bernie Sanders be able to beat him? It's possible that he won't. But then when you actually click on the article and read, even, even within their own, like they're kind of um, refuting their own arguments because one of them was about like white men not being able to win over black people except for Joe Biden and they interviewed like three people one of them was an older black dude who was like, yeah, Bernie's okay, but I think Joe Biden can be, like he's the most likely to beat Trump. But then if you keep seeing these captions, <laughs> these headlines and these narratives, and then you look at just basic principles of journalism, how many people did you ask? How many different perspectives did you try and get? What data are you using? Like, it's based on relatively little data, if any. And when it is, it's looking at polling measurements that are coming out months, like several months before it even matters. Like at this time last, in the last election, Donald Trump had 1% of Republican approval. Hillary Clinton was like far surpassing anybody else in 2008, which obviously Barack Obama won in 08 and 2012. And none of it is really based on even their own ethics that they uh, prescribe for themselves. So that narrative to me, um, I think can cre create the, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I don't, I don't believe it. Like if you talk to the the average person, like he's questionable. I side with him maybe because he, you know, was with Obama for the last eight years. But when you actually interrogate it, it's not that all these black people just support Joe Biden. They've got pragmatic reasons for it. And a lot of us aren't conservative. Um, we we just tend to vote pragmatically. And then in the 2016 election, it's just been that convergence that Aaron was talking about. This convergence of um, trying to undermine Bernie Sanders' popularity. For instance, and I, I don't advocate for any particular politician, I advocate for policies. And in terms of left policies, there are a lot of black people who do support this because when you look at kind of the, the gloss that has, has transpired, talking about 2016, it's all these black people supported Hillary Clinton, but when you break that down, they supported her more in the South. But in the Midwest, where there's a history of black radical politics, there's a history of unionism, there's a history of socialism in Wisconsin, Bernie got the highest black vote, it wasn't a lot, but relative to a newcomer, he got the highest black vote in Wisconsin than anybody else in any other state in the Midwest. So what does that mean? So if he got 31% of the black vote, on average in the swing states were black people, but got about 10% in the South, that's a story. So just in terms of your curiosity as a journalist, I, don't under I did not understand why no one was talking about that. There are maybe two other outlets the New York Times had like a, a blurb about the disaffection of black people in the Midwest. And maybe um, some other folks were talking about what's been going on in like Wisconsin in general with deindustrialization, but no one was connecting that with their disaffection and, and not wanting to vote. Um, we always heard that it was just Trump voters who were doing this. But when you look at the actual numbers, it wasn't so much that he pulled so many you know, white people to him because the, the voter turnout in Wisconsin actually went down by 1%. It was that half of the black people who voted in 2012 did not come out in 2016. It dropped from 
about 88,000 votes for Barack Obama in Wisconsin for black people to about 47,000 votes. So when you look at something that dramatic and the headlines are, oh, all these you know, racist white people who went over to Trump, that's, I mean, that's true on, a, on a, like a, any other presidential election, it's going to, most white people will vote for a Republican, but that wasn't a story to me because that's every presidential election. <laughs> so what happened in Wisconsin, what happened in the Midwest, is something that I think the establishment media doesn't want to address because then they would have to reckon with the fact that black people have a plethora of ideas, a plethora of attitudes, and there's a tradition of black radicalism all over the country that they do not choose to explore. And I also want to point out in your thoughts, the corporate media just straight, has straight up lied about Bernie Sanders with black people. I mean, he actually won in 2016 millennial black uh, people, so that's, that's number one. Number two, uh, yeah, they front-loaded most of the uh, first states to be in the South, and it wasn't, they didn't know who Bernie Sanders was. So yes, he didn't do it as, as well uh, among older uh, black people who also had an affinity for the Clintons, partly because of misinformation. I spoke with a lot of uh, black people in South Carolina who really didn't even know the crime bill was under Bill Clinton. Um, so also, I want to know your thoughts. There seems to be this media narrative that there's a white working class and, and separately things black people care about. But I discovered General Motors laying off 15,000 people. There's a lot of black people who got laid off from General Motors. There's a lot of black people who work for a living. Uh, so I'd love your thoughts because it seems like this is the weaponization of identity politics uh, Katie was talking about. It seems like they think, oh, you know, we've got to win that white working class black. Uh, back, acting like that's kind of somewhat separate from the black world. Yeah, I think part of that narrative comes from being comfortable recognizing white supremacy and saying, okay, this is the reason why they're moving to Republicans, but very few, or even when you talk about even the white working class, very few are questioning the role of capitalism in that. Very few are questioning the role of neoliberal politics, deindustrialization in the Midwest that's doing that. And if they're not doing that for them, they're certainly not doing it for black voters. So for instance, because my, my focus has been in the Midwest, I've got a lot of Wisconsin anecdotes. But in Wisconsin, they've got the highest uh, rate of black male incarceration. They have the highest rate of black male joblessness of all major cities in like, their prime working years. All of these things are, that are going on because you had factories like A.O. Smith or Harley Davidson that left. And black people in the 70s were disproportionately in those industries in Wisconsin. And so when that left, when you had uh, trade deals and interventionist policies and offshoring that is due to you know, a lot of Democratic and Republican policy, black people are going to feel that the most. When we're talking about the great, uh, talk about the Great Recession and the lowering of the home ownership rates, that is concentrated in the Midwest because of you know, segregation and you know, kind of de jure segregation. Um, and so when you're not talking about these narratives, A, you're not talking about black people because you, you, know, you sympathize more with, with kind of white pain, but B, you're not talking about, you're not questioning the role of capitalism <laughs> that how it's affecting black people. And Hillary Clinton kind of said this, she cap encapsulated this the most when she said, you know, a black mom doesn't care about her, um, they're not thinking about Wall Street when they have to worry about their, their son getting shot. Wall Street, or something like that. Do you remember they Well, she did, we, not the, the, black, the banks, we'll break up the banks and racism. Yes, this is a that was it, yes. Yeah. And then she was bringing up like, uh, it's like really disingenuous arguments about um, black police violence and, and framing this as kind of, <coughs> as kind of dichotomous, right. as, 
something that's completely separate from what's going on with the big banks and the fact that under the Great Recession and when you had you know, these commodified securities, these commodified mortgages, that affected Milwaukeeans among the most anywhere else. It affected black people more than any other demographic and then they were targeted by this. So we're not talking about systemic racism at all and how capitalism has, has encouraged it, how it has been fed by racism, how it was created on the backs of black people. We don't get to talk about any of that because it's just Russia, Facebook. You're on Twitter a lot. Uh, you obviously write too, but there's just daily distractions among, I mean, the the unholy alliance between democratic think tanks, uh, democratic activist organizations, uh, with the Democratic Party and the media. I mean, just today, uh, the Daily Kos's uh, Marcos Malikos, pronounce it. Uh, he's he's this is a distraction. He's on with Chuck Todd and saying, you know, Bernie, he just has the same message. That would be like saying, uh, you know. It hasn't changed. Yeah, it hasn't the same changed. Position. You know, this is a problem. Or Chuck Todd, we were talking about during the debate, asked Bernie, um, you know, you, you say that it shouldn't be about age or gender or this and that. Are you kind of, I'm paraphrasing, but like minimizing the diversity of the Democratic Party? It's, it's intentional. Uh, and I think they think they're being subtle, but it's a way of basically distracting from his policies. And they also, Intentionally, I mean, the first question in the debate the other night, Bernie, are you going to raise taxes on the middle class? <laughs> Without pointing out that even a right-wing, co-funded think tank said you save money overall, even though your taxes go up, you save money under single payer. Can you kind of talk about more yeah. about uh, that unholy alliance? Yeah. That? Also, if there's any doubt in anyone's minds about this bias and about MSNBC trafficking in it, they asked him if he would drop out, you know, when, uh, if someone else got, what was it, if, when he would drop out, uh, if, you know, it if it was support, clear that, if it was clear someone was losing, uh, someone else was winning. They don't ask anyone else this question. And I have to point out that Hillary Clinton in 2008, when she was running against Obama, was asked if, um, if she was going to drop out, she said no, and they said, you don't buy the whole um, party unity thing. She goes, I don't, um, because my, my husband didn't drop out until um, June. And, oh, June, we all remember what happened in June, and Bobby Kennedy was shot. So basically, she justified staying in the race because Barack Obama could get assassinated. And that actually, she got in trouble for that. Uh, and Bill said that they hurt the campaign was playing the race card. Then Bill was asked about what he meant when he said the race card. He said, what are you talking about? I didn't say that, but it was on the radio. I mean, Clintons are, God bless them. Bless their hearts. Uh, By the way, let's point out, Bernie Sanders was a big scandal. Why aren't you releasing your taxes? Do you hear them asking the same thing about Joe Biden, who's been in the race now for two months? No. But Bernie's Sorry. a cheap, what is it? He's um, cheap, cheap. cheap, yeah, basically. He's cheap, but not uh, poor. You know, that's another narrative. There's, there's uh, the same people who, there's a real um, comfort with uh, anti-Semitism. It's very weird for me, because I, I spend most of my life, when it comes to anti-Semitism, saying that, some, that things are not anti-Semitic, because people are calling things that are critical of Israel anti-Semitic. So it's a weird a little bit for me role reversal, but like there are so many anti-Semitic tropes. Not Ilan Omar does not use them, but Politico does. Mm -hmm. I mean, you see Bernie Sanders, literally, you can't make this up. He was standing in front of a tree of money 
Like, it was a money tree. Instead of leaves, there were bills. And then he's holding three houses. I mean, then the thing with like the Pinocchio stuff. Um, all, I mean, they, yeah, it, it's really disgusting. But um, I forgot, what was the question you asked me? <laughs> you were talking about the daily distractions oh, of yeah. Of what? Among this kind of unholy alliance yeah. between the Irritants. Right, 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 right. Yeah, the think tankification of uh, politics. And then you have Third Way. And Third Way isn't even like Think Progress. So Think Progress is this very Clinton aligned think tank. Um, Third Way wrote terrible op-eds about uh, warning Democrats from falling over this, the populist cliff in the footsteps of Bill de Blasio and Warren. And um, they are, uh, they, they want to cut, like, they want to cut Social Security, they want to cut Medicare, they don't want to raise taxes, their board of trustees in 2013 out of like 29, 20 were investment bankers, the rest were um, like uh, real estate, corporate um, lawyers, uh, CEOs. Um, and you know, it is relating to, to what you said, Malika, like there is a real weapon, um, you, you talk about how they present these things as in a dichotomy or mutually exclusive. Like there's racial justice and economic justice, according to these narratives. And Hillary Clinton famously said, right, like you were referring to, well, breaking up the banks and racism, no. First of all, no one, they always do the straw man argument. No one's ever said, do this because it's gonna end racism. Do that because it's gonna end sexism. I mean, no one said that about Lily Ledbetter, right, which made it easier for you to sue um, because of pay, Discrimination. No one's like, is that going to end the pay gap? No, but no one said it would. Um, and then, of course, as you refer to, like that was an extremely racialized, um, de like devastating uh, thing that happened with the housing uh, crisis. And you know, to pretend these things are unrelated is just so. Or, or there's this talk about economic justice being a luxury. You hear that a lot. Like, oh, I wish I could care about that. I mean, this is not what real people say. This is what the pundits say. Um, and it's just, you know, there's this famous example. I don't want to give her too much credit, but she's just a scary person named Sally Albright. And, and Twitter, by the way, I think Twitter's a window. In, I say it's a window into where the soul of the media would be, but it's a window. Like, it's not that I think it's changing the world, per se, but it does give you insight into what these people think. It's kind of like a first draft or a more honest thing. But she once said something like, um, uh, and, and she's big in the resistance. She said that income inequality is, is just a problem for straight white men. The rest of us have bigger things to worry about. <laughs> Which was just like, wow, wow, wow. Okay, I got it, I got it. Like, I guess she lives in a world where, like, uh, I, I don't, I don't know. It's like, like, women make more than white men or something. Anyway, but um, yeah, there's all these distractions, and I think that there is a. Um, a really scary discussion about black people as this monolith, right? Like, it's very fetishizing and othering, and it's just this group of people that aren't politicized or aren't political, and they're all the same, and they all have the same ideas, and if you have some ideas that aren't um, the ideas that you may want people to have, then you're like a sellout. You know, you see this a lot. Um, and there's this idea of what like real black voters think or want, which you were kind of pointing to. Um, which isn't really representative of, of the truth, and it's just a way for people who have neoliberal politics to pretend that there's some inherent racial justice built into those policies, which are, of course, extremely racist, um, and everything else is. So. And Aaron, I'd like to ask you, I just texted you something along these lines today, but you have talked about, I mean, all of this distraction on Russiagate, it's totally covering up 
Mick, Mick Mulvaney's fuckery at, at the you know budget office. Um, Rick Perry at the energy department. Trump is about to pass another massive tax cut. But Russia, you know, basically all these we, the, the resistance to Trump seems to be focused on themes, narratives, and the other like Russia and things, but not very focused on the policy. Yes, DACA and things like that, but the, the economic damage that he's done gets very little play, and uh, this is in part how how would if you're gonna pluck off some of those Trump voters, how are you gonna do that if they don't know what the hell he's doing? Exactly. The resistance to Trump, for the most part, has been, I think, a resistance to the reality that he was elected and a refusal to accept that, and then a resistance to dealing with the consequences of it. So those of us who, who you know, called out Russiagate and challenged it, we were you know, not just accused of being Putin apologists, whatever, but also being Trump apologists too. And you know, there's there's two issues here. One, there's a, jur there's a journalism issue. Like, what are the facts? I mean, that's what we follow as journalists. Period. Sure, we have a partisan bias here, but you know, but ultimately, if we're journalists, we're covering factual issues. We're we have fidelity to what the facts are. So there's a fact. But then also from a political point of view, and I don't hide the fact that I'm a leftist. Uh, I can't think of a bigger gift to Donald Trump than to take uh, attention off of this radical administration, which has been radically enriching the coffers of the elites that it serves, uh, you know, increasing uh, militarization abroad, uh, making, the, uh, making the immigration system even more cruel than it actually was. I can't think of a bigger gift to them than to take our attention and energy off of all of that and put it into a conspiracy theory and the hopes that these uh, national security state bureaucrats like Robert Mueller would validate it. And if you look at the result, that's exactly what happened. And, and this is where I think it's important to talk about Russiagate in the context of Bernie Sanders' emergence. So Bernie Sanders showed that there could be a, a successful politician who almost won, and probably would have won if not for the uh, primary being rigged against him. Uh, you know, success coming from talking about real issues and talking about class issues and talking about challenging the elites. So, you know, instead of, that was a challenge to elites, you know? And so, divert, instead of uh, you know seizing on that momentum and building a movement against Trump based on all the energy that emerged during that primary, and appealing to those who thought that in voting for Trump they were uh, voting for a working class champion slash anti-militarist, uh, we put energy into a conspiracy theory. And to me, the like the biggest encapsulation of this is the fact that there were bigger protests over the firing of Jeff Sessions uh -huh. than there were over Trump's tax cuts, the largest upward transfer of wealth in US history. Think about that. So we're gonna march in the streets for Jeff Sessions' job because we think that we think it's gonna threaten Robert Mueller's job. Uh, we're not gonna march over 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 tax cuts or we're pulling out of the Iran deal, or we're pulling out of the Paris Accords, you know, basically which sets us off to existential peril. I mean all these things get sidelined. So, I mean, in the, in the drive for ratings and the drive to protect the status of the failed neoliberals who lost to Trump, we handed Trump a massive gift. And on top of the gift of diverting his resistance into a conspiracy theory that venerates intelligence officials, uh, a conspiracy theory culture that venerates intelligence officials, we handed him the further gift of when it's all over, it's done, it's a dud, there's nothing there, there's no conspiracy, and he can go into election claiming vindication and talk about how he was you know, besieged by the deep state that wanted to bring him down. You know, so it, it, this thing was a, a massive gift to him. It's, it shows the consequences when we have a political system that is you know, based around serving the interests of privilege, not around serving the interests of, of average people and speaking to their concerns.
And that's why I call Russiagate a, a privilege protection racket. That's, uh, that's ultimately what it means. And I want to, next question for you again, and come back this way. Can't talk about corporate media without the military industrial complex. So uh, I think, obviously, Bernie Sanders is a great threat to not just the journalists who work in these outlets, but mainly the multi-billion dollar corporate conglomerates that cover that, uh, own them. But Tulsi Gabbard has been wiped out uh, in particular. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard, when you're talking about the Daily Beast just did a piece saying Russia is basically writing her campaign checks, citing three people, including like an RT person, and Stephen Cohen, who's a reputable Russia scholar. Uh, obviously, that now, since she had a good debate performance, Google Trends showed she was the most searched candidate. Now all these pieces coming out about, oh, she got a macro boost, or like the bots are out again. No evidence, just put it out there. Uh, obviously, we've seen, and, and thank you to Code Pink, who's here, for the great work they've done on uh, Venezuela. <laughs> organization doing more actual journalism right. than the media, they were there while the Secret Service was breaking all sorts of international laws. Right. Uh, so I want to ask you, Aaron, uh, Russiagate kind of ties into this whole military industrial complex, but I mean, for people that know their history, the New York Times had uh, uh, CIA agents undercover there in the 1950s. Obviously, I mean, Amazon has a a billion dollar contract with the Pentagon, 600 million with the CIA, never disclosed. Uh, can you kind of talk about how the military industrial complex, the corporate media, props that up uh, just as much as Wall Street? Yeah, well, so in the context of Russiagate, you've seen it weaponized against anti-war voices. So, you know, Bernie Sanders and Jill Stein and Tulsi Gabbard, they've all had to answer for the fact that there's, you know, there's articles claiming that Russian trolls boosted their campaign. And we're supposed to believe, it takes seriously for a second, that that has anything to do with their success and their appeal. It can't be because uh, you know, uh, they don't accept the legitimacy of the US empire and that appeals to people who also don't want to see their tax dollars go to the war machine. It has to be because you know, Putin secretly supported him with his sophisticated clickbait operation. Uh, you know, where it happens to be, by the way, the same think tanks coming up with these figures happen to be funded by things like NATO. Uh, via the Atlantic Council. It, I mean, that's a racket. There's basically a, a little side hustle around people willing to blame Russia for you know, social media trolling and they get big contracts for it. Even though if you read their reports they put out, they're ridiculous. Like, there was a Senate report, uh, official Senate report, put up by this firm New Knowledge, and they had a section in there about Russia's social, alleged social media campaign. And one of, one of, one of their examples for the, uh, Russia's attempt to recruit assets inside the U.S. is, is they talk about how uh, Russia explo exploits people's vulnerabilities. And so the first example of that was an ad featuring Jesus consoling a dejected young man. And Jesus says to him, are you struggling with masturbation? Reach out to me and we'll beat it together. <laughs>so much for listening to the Katie Halper show. Make sure you check out our recent bonus episodes that I just released with the Dean Spade and stand by for another bonus episode that I'm releasing this weekend with Ronnie Callick. Make sure you follow the guests that I interviewed on Twitter. Jim Zogby is JJZ1600. Malika Jabali is Malika Jabali, which is M-A-L-A-I-K-A-J-A-B-A-L-I. 
Aaron Mate is Aaron J. Mate, that's A-A-R-O-N-J-M-A-T-E. And Jordan Sheridan is Jordan Sheridan. Stand by for the bonus episode I'll be releasing, which includes more of the left form and a special interview with Rania Kalik. Thanks so much for listening to The Katie Helper Show. The Katie Helper Show is edited by Ted Reedy. Our theme song is by the band Cordova. 